poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I rep reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God give us ears to hear his word. What excites you? What makes your ears perk up? What gets your blood pumping? What issues, what concerns, what problems are you enthusiastic about? For many people, it's politics that gets them excited. Maybe you're in that category. Uh, we're approaching another major election, and we're going to see millions of people become exceedingly passionate about getting their candidate elected, their agenda passed, their particular issue embraced. For others, sports is what they're really enthusiastic about. Again, maybe this is you. You can't wait to get home this afternoon to watch your game. You're passionate about the Colts or Ball State or Notre Dame, and seeing your team win brings you incredible joy. Still others are passionate about their career, receiving a promotion, pleasing their boss, getting to work on time. That's what their mind is spinning with all the time. And in many respects, these types of people make ideal employees, though they're also very prone to workaholism. But how about you? What is it that you are passionate about? Is it sports, politics, your family? Is it video games, garage sales, vacations, new clothes, a new house, a good deal on books? What are the matters that just excite you and get you to stand up and get your blood pumping? Well, whatever it is that excites you, here's something that we can know for certain. The issues that excite you reveal what you value. Do you believe that? The issues that excite you reveal what you value. The reason why your heart starts beating and your lungs start pumping when a certain, things ha certain thing happens is because deep down you think that those things are good, that they're valuable, that having that thing will complete your life. I think we understand this almost intuitively, that what you're passionate about reveals what you treasure. Well, here in Revelation chapter 3, we have a church whose profession did not match its passion. Its lack of enthusiasm, lack of excitement for Jesus, was demonstrating an underlying lack of love, really an underlying lack of faith. And while this church claimed to follow Jesus and claimed to be a Christian church, its lack of passion proved otherwise. And by considering this apathetic, half-hearted church, we're given by God one more characteristic of a godly, God-honoring, healthy church. Now this is our first time back in the book of Revelation in over three months. Didn't expect things to pan out that way, but that's the way things work sometimes. And since it's the first time back in Revelation in quite some time, let's do a little bit of review. Where have we been in the book of Revelation? Well, the book of Revelation is essentially broken up into three main sections. Chapter 1 contains the introduction. Chapter 1, you'll remember, is where we learn that the Revelation is written by John the Apostle. The Apostle John, he's in exile for his faith on the Isle of Patmos. On the Lord's Day, God gives him this vision, and it's this vision of the glorified Lord Jesus. 
In chapter 1, John sees the Lord Jesus with eyes like a flame of fire, with skin like burnished bronze. This is the Lord Jesus who's reigning in heaven right now as we speak. This is the Lord Jesus who's going to imminently return to earth. And like we said when we studied Revelation 1, this glorified vision of Jesus, this exalted vision of Jesus, is what John most needed in his hour of persecution. It's what the churches in Asia Minor most needed. And it's what we most need today, to stand in awe of the Lord Jesus. So that's chapter 1, the introduction. Now, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, they contain these seven letters written by Jesus to seven churches, which are all in modern-day Turkey today. Uh, these letters are similar to other New Testament letters, with the exception that they're written by Jesus himself. And as we've seen, each of these letters highlights a different virtue that a church ought to possess. Uh, they're almost like different sides of a diamond. Together, they come together and form a healthy church. In previous sermons, we looked at six of these seven virtues. We studied love, suffering, truth, holiness, spiritual life, and courage. And one of the points I emphasized over and over again is that these are the virtues that really matter in a church. So many of the things that people get excited about today in churches are of relatively little value when you look at the New Testament. Have all the programs you want, all the amazing music you want, all the activities you want. If a church is lacking in the virtues that Jesus emphasizes in Revelation 2 and 3, it is not a good church and it's not pleasing to God. And we here at Trinity, as we think about building a church, we should be supremely concerned with cultivating these virtues that Jesus says are important. Well, the final part of the book of Revelation, that covers chapters 4 through 22. And it's here that we get all of those future prophecies, future prophetic visions. We're familiar with these. Even if we don't know what they mean, we're familiar with them. It's here in chapters 4 through 22 that we get into the seals, the bulls, the scrolls, the flying locusts, the lake of fire, the dragon, the beast, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That occupies most of Revelation 4 through 22. Now, just to let you know where we're going in this series, I do not intend to study these prophetic visions in detail. I know that disappoints some of us, but relieves others of us. And we're going to be avoiding going into them in detail, primarily because I'm not entirely sure myself what they mean and how they apply today. Instead, we'll probably spend maybe six or eight more sermons in the book of Revelation, just sort of hitting the mountain peaks before we then move on to another book of Scripture. Well, like I said, we come this morning to Revelation 3 in this church here in Laodicea. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? Now, let me tell you just a little bit about Laodicea. Laodicea was located near the city of Colossae, and it was a remarkably wealthy and industrious city. It was famous for its medicine and for its fine black wool. Now, we're not entirely sure how the church in Laodicea began. Uh, since it's so close to Colossae, it's likely that the church here began with Epaphras going over and doing some missionary work in this area, maybe 55 AD. But we've got to confess that's just speculation. Now, as we read this letter to the church of the Laodiceans, you'll notice there's no mention of any good works or uh, virtues that Jesus commends them for. Uh, this will be important later on, but this church, it, by the time it receives this letter, it's deeply sick and unhealthy. We also notice there's no mention of persecution that they've endured for Jesus, no suffering for the gospel. Keep those little details in mind, for those tell us a lot about the nature of this church. Now, as we can tell from this letter, this church was wealthy. It had somehow amassed a lot of possessions, a lot of earthly wealth. And really, more than wealthy, it was materialistic. It loved the things of the world. Look at verse 17. 
Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. While this church was well off and even boasted of how well it was doing, it was spiritually impoverished. And and I don't think that this is a coincidence, that this church, while so wealthy, is also spiritually unhealthy. Realize in Scripture those two themes run parallel. As you grow wealthy, the temptation to forget God increases along with it. This is exactly what happened to Israel as they they prospered in the promised land. As they grew wealthy, they kind of forgot about God. And recognize that's a huge temptation to us as well. Especially here in America, where comparatively speaking, we are rich. The temptation to forget God, to forget you need God, will always run parallel to riches. It's just like 1 Timothy 6.9 says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So that's a little bit about the church in Laodicea. Let's now look at the body of the letter. And the first thing I'd like you to consider with me here is Jesus' hatred for half-hearted devotion. This comes out clearly in verses seven, pardon me, 14 through 17. Jesus' hatred for spiritual apathy. Look at verse, pardon me, half-hearted devotion. Look at verse 14. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now pause there. We do need to notice the way in which Jesus is describing himself here. He says he's the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now that word Amen, as you probably know, it means trustworthy or true. We say it at the, at the end of our prayers because we believe that whatever the person just prayed was true and trustworthy. So it's really just a synonym for that next phrase, the faithful and true witness. Jesus, who's speaking here, is fully trustworthy. What he is about to say can be believed with absolute confidence, absolute certainty. He then describes himself as the beginning of God's creation. Now, that little phrase has created a lot of controversy because it sounds, at first glance, as if Jesus is saying he was the first created thing. This is what Jehovah Witnesses claim, that Jesus isn't fully, eternally God, but the first thing God made, the first created being. Have you heard Jehovah Witnesses say that? Sometimes they'll point to this passage as proving that. Well, realize the word used here for beginning. It does not mean beginning in the sense of time, but beginning in the sense of origin. Not beginning in the sense of time, but beginning in the sense of origin. Sort of like how a river might begin up in the mountains and then flow down to the sea. So also Jesus is the originator of creation, the source of all that exists. It's just like Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, talking about Jesus, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God in the sense that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the creator of the universe, the one whose words can be trusted. He's the one speaking this letter to the church in Laodicea. Well, Jesus goes on to say in verse 15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now the words cold and hot used here, they're talking about spiritual states, attitudinal states. The church is not cold in the sense that it's antagonistic toward Christianity, nor is it hot in that it burned with passion for Jesus. Instead, it's plain old lukewarm, indifferent, apathetic, maybe even bored with the things of God. 
If you think about it, lukewarm water is almost good for nothing. Cold water, it'll refresh you on a hot day. Warm water, take a bath in it. What do you do with lukewarm water? Pour it down the drain. And yet that's the illustration Jesus uses to describe the spiritual state of these Laodiceans. Now you think about it, but in many ways, the church in Laodicea would have fit in very well here in modern-day America. I mean, the church in Laodicea is exactly the type of church many Americans want. Today, zeal for religious things, passion, excitement for religious things, that's considered fanaticism, isn't it? It's considered unhealthy, maybe even dangerous to get worked up for the things of God. And it's those people who take religion seriously, who are viewed with skepticism as maybe even dangerous, that we need to avoid and maybe even quarantine. So again, you think about it, the church in Laodicea was typical of many churches in America. Yet regardless of all that kind of worldly thinking, realize, brothers and sisters, God is calling all Christians to burn with zeal for Jesus, to burn with passion for the things of God. In many passages, we are commanded to be zealous. This surprises people, but listen to Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, burn in the Spirit, serve the Lord. We're commanded to burn in the Spirit. You might think that's fanaticism. You might think that's for those religious kind of fundamentalists out there. Realize that's a command of Scripture, to be passionate for the glory of God. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, does that sound like apathetic Christianity? Does that sound like the casual Christianity that characterizes most of American evangelicalism? No, our passion for Jesus ought to be so great, our affection for him so great, that it makes our love for our family members appear like hate. Indifference toward Jesus, half-hearted commitment, that is incomparable with true biblical Christianity. And therefore, for the church in Laodicea and for so many churches in America today to be apathetic, that is a serious sin. You think about it, the sort of zeal that ought to characterize Christians is the sort of zeal Jesus demonstrated during his earthly life. We read about it earlier, but you remember what Jesus did? He took a whip and he went into the temple and he drove the money changers out of the temple. I mean, that's pretty radical. Now, I'm not saying that we take up weapons or anything like that, but we're supposed to have that same sort of zeal and commitment to the things of God. And you'll remember, what did the apostles say about Jesus after he did that? John 2.17, his disciples remembered that it was said of him, zeal for your house will consume me. But again, the church in Laodicea, they're casual Christians. They were easygoing Christians. They liked to view their walk with the Lord more like a pleasure cruise than a fight of the faith. Or more like a jaunt in the park than a dangerous journey in a dangerous land. They cautioned against getting too excited, too fanatical, too zealous. You know, you don't want that world out there to think you're crazy, do you? And in light of that, consider what Jesus says to this church. Verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the word's actually stronger than spit. It's actually the word vomit. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth because of your lukewarmness. You think about it, are there lifestyles out there that make you nauseous? Are there Maybe, you know, alternative lifestyles out there that just make you feel kind of sick to your stomach. 
Realize, brothers and sisters, that that is exactly how Jesus feels toward apathetic devotion, apathetic Christianity. He hates it, and he threatens to vomit it out of his mouth. Now, at this point, you're probably wondering, what exactly is Jesus threatening when he says he's going to spit them out of his mouth? Is he saying they're going to lose their salvation? Is he saying that they're in danger of hell? Keep those questions in mind. We'll answer them as we go. Jesus further describes the state of this church in verse 17. This is sorry. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We could take this verse and sort of expand it into an entire theology of self-deception and how we can be so deluded about our spiritual state. We can think we're doing great when in reality we're not. And you think about the specific church here, this is so ironic. They weren't enthusiastic about Jesus, but they were enthusiastic about earthly wealth. There's almost a boasting in their voice. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. They're all excited about their earthly possessions, but not about treasures in heaven. And that's why Jesus says, you didn't even realize you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And again, so much of this reminds me of the contemporary evangelical church. Churches that have no gospel, but boast of their stained glass windows, or their pipe organ, or their rose garden. Churches that have no burden for the lost, no desire to make disciples, no, no love for their neighbor, and yet they're bragging about their softball team, or their rock and praise band, or their smoke machine. Most American professing evangelical Christians would have felt right at home in the church of Laodicea. But I've got to ask, does that include you? Is that the type of Christianity you're after? Notice the particular words Jesus uses to describe their spiritual state. They are wretched and pitiable, both describing their lack of spiritual health. They're poor. They didn't have the unsearchable riches of Christ. They are blind. They're not able to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're blinded by the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and they're naked. They're lacking the robes of Christ's righteousness. Now let me show you my hand and tell you what I think about the church in Laodicea. I think Jesus is saying that this is a church of non-Christians. I think Jesus is very plainly saying this church is made up of people that don't know me in a saving way. Your lack of passion is proving that you actually don't believe the gospel you profess. I don't think there's any other way around it. While you claim to be a church, you're spiritually poor, you're spiritually blind, you're spiritually dead, spiritually naked. It's a church of non-converted people. And you think, how in the world can that happen? Well, think again about America today. Are there lots of churches out there made up of people that don't know the Lord? Absolutely. And if that doesn't make sense, please talk to me because I can explain to you what a Christian actually is. But there are thousands of churches that are just packed full. Maybe even this morning, every seat is full, but they don't know the Lord. Something analogous to that is the church of Laodicea. John MacArthur had some good words on this church. He wrote this. Some churches make, make the Lord weep. Others make him angry. The Laodicean church made him sick. The lukewarm Laodiceans were not genuinely saved, yet they did not openly reject Christ. They attended church and professed to know the Lord, yet like the Pharisees, they were content to practice a self-righteous religion. They were hypocrites, playing games, rich in spiritual pride, but bankrupt in saving grace. 
John Stott also strikes a good chord when he writes this. We shall need to brace ourselves to hear what Jesus thinks of the Laodicean church. No doubt the congregation of Laodicea teemed with self-satisfied churchgoers. Yet morally and spiritually, they were naked, blind beggars. They were beggars because they had nothing with which to purchase forgiveness or an entry into the kingdom of God. They were naked because they had no clothes to fit them to stand before God. And they were blind because they had no idea either of their spiritual poverty or of their spiritual danger. To be half-hearted, complacent, and only casually interested in the things of God, like the Laodiceans, is to prove oneself not a Christian at all, and to be so distasteful to Christ as to be in danger of vehement rejection. You see, this church, it was lukewarm and indifferent toward Jesus, but that was showing its heart. It was demonstrating that it did not actually value Jesus. And in demonstrating that it did not value Jesus, it demonstrated it didn't trust in Jesus at all. I think one of the great lessons this letter teaches us is how saving faith is more than just the mere affirmation of historical facts. You see that here? Saving faith is so much more than mere affirmation of all of just historical facts. And we get this intuitively. You know, I can know that there was a person named Christopher Columbus, but put no hope in him, no joy in him, no confidence in him. So also, so many today, they might comprehend the facts of the gospel, but that is not saving faith. And one of the marks of true saving faith is a little bit of passion, a little bit of excitement, at least a little bit of zeal. If what Jesus has done doesn't move you at all, if it never excites your heart, if you're not made at least a little enthusiastic from time to time when you consider that Jesus by his death and resurrection has rescued you from hell, realize you are not a Christian. Regardless of how many times you've walked the aisle, regardless of how many times you've prayed the prayer, you do not believe on Jesus. And like this church in Laodicea, Jesus is nauseated by your hypocrisy. Now let me carefully clarify what I'm saying here. I am certainly not saying that all Christians are always passionate, always joyful about Jesus all the time. Certainly I'm not. I mean, we're all emotional messes, and we have good days and bad days. We have days when our love for Jesus burns hot, and other days when it is cold, and Jesus feels distant. Isn't that true? Nor am I saying that if you're, say, struggling with some sin, or going through some dark time in your walk with the Lord, that that's a sign you're on your way to hell. Not at all. Again, read the Psalms. David and the other psalmists, they would go through times of prolonged spiritual depression. Yet they knew the Lord, so don't hear me contradicting any of that. But what I am saying is that if you're never moved by what Jesus has done, if you never experience any excitement, any passion, especially if you do for other things, you know, sometimes people say, you know, I'm just not very emotional. But they get really emotional when it's, say, Black Friday. If you have no passion for Jesus, when you contemplate the fact that he's rescued you from hell, I must say this in love, you have not believed on the Lord Jesus in your heart, regardless of whatever professions you've made. And like this congregation, you're self-deceived. You don't even realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And, you're, and you want to know what would help here? If you really want to know if you're passionate about Jesus, ask those who know you well. Ask your friends, family, people that spend time with you. They can help you discern what excites you. Maybe that would be a good application from this sermon. This afternoon at lunch, just ask those that you know. What do you think excites me? If they can name NFL and a good deal at Amazon and 
uh, some TV show, but Jesus isn't on that list, you should be concerned. Now, if at this point you've come to realize, you know, I don't think I actually believe the gospel. I think all I did was affirm historical facts about Jesus, but didn't put my saving faith in Jesus. If that's the case, let me just say, we are glad you're here. Seriously, there's nowhere we'd rather you be, and it really is in the sovereignty of God that God has brought you to this place to hear this message of what real saving faith is. And if that's you, let's begin by considering how really evil it is to be unmoved by God and by what Jesus has done. And when we think of evil, we think, you know, murderers, thieves, rapists, surely those things are evil. But in addition to that, indifference toward God is evil. I mean, God is the most amazing, beautiful, glorious person in the universe. What Jesus has done is the most life-changing, universe-transforming thing in the universe. And then to hear that knowledge and to remain unmoved, to remain indifferent, especially when we get really excited by, say, NFL, what is that other than evil? What's more than that, you think about it, but... This indifference toward God really is underneath so many of our sinful behaviors. Why are we unkind toward family and friends? Why do we cheat to get ahead? Why do we bend the truth? Why do we boast about how great we are when that's a lie? Why do we manipulate people to get what we want? It's due to this underlying indifference toward God. It's really a fruit of indifference toward God. So in light of the evil of this, consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 21. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You ever heard that verse before? It's kind of a shocking verse you think about it. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And Lord there is talking about Lord Jesus. And when Jesus says somebody's accursed, that's not saying they're going to have an unpleasant day. It means they're under the wrath of God on their way to hell. And we've got to admit that this is who we all are by nature. All of us by nature find the things of God, the things of the Bible, dull, boring, disinteresting. We're the type that, you know, fall asleep during a Bible reading but can't wait to see another episode of our favorite TV show. This is who we are by nature. So in light of what the scriptures say, we're in trouble. We're, we're hopeless. We're lost. We, we can delight in worthless things but not in the most important person in the universe. That's who we are, but here's the good news. You ready? Those are exactly the kind of people Jesus came to die for. The kind of people who are indifferent toward God. The kind of people who fall asleep when thinking about God, but wake up at their favorite movie. Those are the people Jesus loved and came to die for. You see, the very same Jesus speaking in this letter, he came down from heaven and was born as a little baby. He lived a perfect, sinless life, always zealous for the things of God. But then he died on the cross, and he died absorbing the wrath of God in our place, taking the judgment of God in our place. People who by nature are so indifferent toward God, Jesus suffered the punishment their sins deserve. And we know that three days later, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead. So if you're here today and you sense in your heart no passion for God, no real joy in God, no love for God, welcome to the club. That's who we all are by nature. But hear the good news that Jesus died for such people. And today the opportunity remains open for you. The invitation is open. Come to Jesus today. 
Turn to him truly today. Embrace him with the empty hand of faith. Instantly you will be saved and instantly made right with God. But not only right with God, you'll be given a new nature, a new heart. A heart that delights in the things of God. Ever so insignificantly at first, ever so small at first, but over time more and more delights in the things of God. He will take away your cold, lukewarm heart and give you a heart of love for Jesus. That's the invitation of the gospel. So I invite you right now, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Right now, turn from your sins, trust in Jesus. Embrace his cross, embrace his resurrection. Be made right with God. Turn to Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after today's service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today. Moving on, notice with me next, Jesus' compassion on the spiritually wretched. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus' compassion on the spiritually wretched. In verse 18, Jesus says this, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love are reproved and disciplined, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Now, did you pick up in these verses the compassion, the love, really the pity in Jesus' voice as he speaks to them? Even though their behavior repulsed him and made him nauseous, he's drawn to them in love. He's not pulling away in disgust. He's drawing toward them and inviting them to come to him. And look at the specific counsel he provides, verse 18. Buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you might be rich. Get some true riches. You got all this earthly wealth, have some true riches. White garments, that you might clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness not be seen. You're not yet clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Be clothed, and sail to anoint your eyes so that you might see. You're blinded by the devil, but see. Honestly, the thing that persuaded me that these individuals were not Christians was the way in which Jesus tells them that they need white garments. If you look at that throughout Revelation, the white garments, they do signify forgiveness of sins and justification. It's like Revelation uh, 17.14 says, their garments have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. So as I look at these verses here, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is really inviting them to turn to him for salvation. Turn to me, an entire church. Be saved. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Be clothed in my righteousness. Or to use verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Again, do you sense the compassion here, the pity, how tenderly Jesus is inviting them? Realize you go throughout the Bible, and this is the heart of God towards sinners. Yes, he hates sin, and vehemently so, and he will punish that sin eternally in hell. And yet now there is compassion, there is pity. It's like the Lord says in Ezekiel 33.11, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Truly the words of 2 Peter 3.19 describe our God. The Lord is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the heart of God towards sinners, and yet 
So it's to be our heart as well. You see, while we hate sin, our heart towards sinners ought to be one of compassion, pity, mercy, pleading with people to turn to Jesus before it's too late. I ask you, brothers and sisters, what kind of behavior makes you nauseous? Don't say anything out loud. We all have them, don't we? Uh, maybe a lifestyle, you know, prostitute, drug dealer. Maybe it's people committed to a political ideology, the opposite of ours. Maybe it's a drunk, a homeless person. But we all have these people whose lifestyles make us nauseous. But are you seeking to demonstrate toward those individuals the same kind of compassion that Jesus has toward them? Continually seeking their good, their eternal salvation, do you have the kind of pity that Jesus has toward them? Obviously, we're called to emulate this. All of this is Jesus' compassion on the spiritually wretched. Honestly, this speaks to me in uh, having compassion toward false teachers. You know, if you know me at all, I love sound doctrine, love sound theology, and I, I think false teaching is like the plague. And yet with that, do I have compassion on false teachers? Do I have love for their souls and pleading with them to repent lest they perish? I was kind of convicted of this recently thinking about Benny Hinn. Some of you may have seen this little video where Benny Hinn kind of claims to uh, repent. It doesn't seem like he really does, but he kind of claims to. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit kind of convicted me. I had never prayed for Benny Hinn's salvation up to that point. I just, I, I kind of hated him and seethed toward him, but I had never had pity on his soul. Now, you might not feel the same way toward false teachers, but there are these people groups out there that you don't really like, and you, you kind of like, nah, I can't wait for them to go to hell. Repent of that sin. That wasn't a joke. Repent of that sin and seek to cultivate compassion on these souls, eternal souls made in the image of God, who if they will not repent in a very brief time, will be cast into hell forever. One last thing from this passage to consider. Consider with me finally Jesus' promise to those who believe. Verses 20 through 22. Jesus' promise to those who believe. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father in his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the first promise Jesus here holds out to those who will repent is intimate fellowship. Intimate fellowship, that's what verse 20 is talking about. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. You've got to realize in Bible times, eating with someone meant so much more than it does today. Eating with someone in Bible times was a sign of fellowship, friendship. Uh, you know, today you can eat with people you don't even know at all. I've been in McDonald's and seen people who don't know one at all sit down on the same table because there just aren't any chairs around. Uh, realize in Bible times it was very different. To eat a meal with someone, to sit down, that was a sign of intimate fellowship, intimate communion. Really a sign that we were friends. And Jesus is saying to all who will believe, I will have a personal relationship with you. You will be my friend. I will be your older brother. We will be together in the family of God. And it's kind of interesting that we see this foreshadowed in the Lord's Supper, which we'll be observing next week. The Lord's Supper is not the entirety of our fellowship with God, but it is a sign of the kind of communion we have with God. And again, realize that's the kind of fellowship that's offered to you today if you'll, re you'll repent and turn to Jesus in faith. No matter how perverse your sins might be, no matter how evil you've been in the past, if you will but turn to Jesus and embrace him with faith, Instantly, you'll enter into communion with God. 
intimate, personal fellowship with Jesus. Again, he will be your older brother. God the Father will be your father, and we will be your brothers and sisters in Christ. Intimate fellowship. The second promise Jesus offers to those who believe is there in 21. He says, The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father in his throne. Now, believe it or not, but as I read the Bible, I think this is a reference to the millennial kingdom. Now, I realize not everybody here agrees with me on this point. That's okay. Welcome to church. But I do believe that a time period is still coming that's yet future that we call the millennium when many of the promises that were made in the Old Testament of the prophets are yet to be fulfilled. During that time, Jesus will reign. And what this passage appears to be promising is that those of us who have believed will reign with him, will sit with him on his throne, royal throne executing judgment. 1 Corinthians 6 even says we'll judge angels, whatever the world that means. But if you think about it, for sinners like you and me, who by nature find God dull, boring, and disinteresting, for us to not only be forgiven, but to reign with Jesus, that's about the most exalted position imaginable, isn't it? But what if they won't believe? What if they won't turn from their apathy to Jesus? What will happen to this church in Laodicea? What will happen to the thousands of churches in America that will not repent of their unbelief? Well, sadly, to all of those who will not heed Jesus' compassionate invitation here, there is no hope. When Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, then it'll be too late for compassion. Too late for grace. The window of opportunity will be closed and there will be only a fearful expectation of judgment. On that day, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. While Jesus' compassion toward those who are spiritually wretched is glorious and while his promises to those who believe are amazing, again, there is wrath coming for those who reject Jesus. So one last time, I beg you to trust in Jesus now. I beg you to trust Jesus now before it is too late. Well, to conclude our time this morning, Jesus' letter here to the church of Laodicea gives us one more characteristic of a healthy, God-honoring church. A church that brings glory to the Savior, a church that really serves people's souls, will be characterized by a passion for the glory of God a zeal to know God and to make him known. And as I've been arguing this morning, this passion for God, it's really a fruit of true saving faith. To close up, I ask you a question we've mentioned several times in this series. What characteristics are you looking for in a church? What virtues are you seeking to cultivate here at this church? If perchance you move on from this place and have to find another church to to join, what character traits would you desire to see in that congregation? As I hope you've seen from our studies together in Revelation 2 and 3, far more important than music style, far more important than the youth group, far more important than the size of programs, are these traits that Jesus emphasizes here in chapters 2 and 3. Is that church, is our church characterized by a supreme love for the Lord Jesus? a willingness to suffer for the gospel, a love for biblical doctrine, a commitment to sexual purity, spiritual life, courage to stand fast in the face of fear, and passion for the glory of God. 
If our church, if any church, has these character traits, it has what truly matters. Again, that will be a church bringing glory to God and serving its neighbor. But if our church, if any church, lacks these characteristics, you've got to ask, is that church doing anything worthwhile at all? Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for this particular passage and for the way that it's called us to passion, to zeal for the glory of God. Please help us. We know how dull we are, how cold our hearts are, how easily we get interested in the things of the world. Have mercy on us. Work in our hearts by your spirit and give us fire, a longing to know you, a passion for Jesus and his gospel. Please work. We pray again, Lord, for any in this room, any within the hearing of my voice who don't yet know you, work in their hearts that right now they would turn from their sins and believe on Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.